you're listening to Conversations with Scholars. This section of the podcast is dedicated to the stories of marginalized bodies in academia. This is inspired by Black feminist sociologist Jacqueline Alexander and political activist Angela Davis. Davis notes the importance of how histories never unfold in isolation, and we cannot fully know our own histories without better knowing the stories of others. So let's learn each other's stories and follow a process of retelling, revising, reflecting, and relaunching. Today's discussion is with Dr. Elise A. Mitchell, a historian of the early modern Black Atlantic and is currently a presidential postdoctoral fellow in the history department at Princeton University. Broadly, her work examines the social and political histories of embodiment, healing, disease, race, and gender in the early modern Atlantic world, with a focus on the Caribbean region. She is also an editor and founding board member of the online magazine Insurrect, Radical Thinking in Early American Studies. So we're here today with Dr. Mitchell. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to have you on to talk about your experience in academia and in graduate school. So before we get started into the whole thing, well, I think we're, we're probably just going to get into it. Um, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about yourself and introduce yourself? Um, what made you go into graduate school, intentional, unintentional, <laughs> and um, your research? Yeah, so um, I guess I'll start with just telling you a little bit about my background and my research. So I am originally from Brooklyn, New York. Um, I was born in Brooklyn and then raised mostly in northern New Jersey. I'm in a small town called South Orange. And um, my research focuses on the history of slavery in the Atlantic world with a strong focus on the Caribbean. And I examine in my current book project how enslaved people um, contended with smallpox epidemics during the early modern period, so between roughly 1500 and 1800 across the Atlantic world, including the western coast of Africa and um, the island territories and um, coastal regions of the Caribbean. Um, And broadly speaking, my work is interested in enslaved people's encounters with medical practitioners, how enslaved people conceptualized health and healing, and how they um, dealt with um, community well-being and health and healing um, beyond just individualized therapeutics. Um, So thinking about the role of social movements and um, the role of slave revolts and other things in and their implications for bodily health and well-being. how did I get interested in this? So I became interested in the early modern period when I was a f- the summer after my freshman year of college. So I um, applied with several friends to do these research internships where you, um, and I attended the University of Pennsylvania. So they had this program called PERM where you applied to work as a research assistant for a tenured professor 
on one of their research projects. And I applied for several different projects. And then one of the professors emailed me back and said, so you really want to do this? If you do, you have the job. And his name was Larry Silver. And it was a project looking at early modern images of animals and people, primarily from South America and the Caribbean. And I just became so fascinated with the images and so fascinated with the time period that I decided to write my undergraduate thesis on visual representations and textual representations of Black women in the British Caribbean, um, sort of understanding the, it was really a dissection of the white gaze. And after doing that project, I became much more interested in enslaved people's interiority and their physical and visceral experiences rather than the representational sphere. And so I started researching enslaved people's embodied experiences and found a lot of evidence about disease in my first year of graduate school. And so I ended up pursuing a first year research paper focusing specifically on enslaved people's experiences of smallpox, um, specifically medical treatments for smallpox, such as smallpox inoculation, in this case at the hands of a white physician, although um, West Africans were knowledgeable of smallpox inoculation long before Europeans. And as I continued to delve deeper into that project, I realized that I, it, it was sufficient to be a dissertation. And so that's kind of what set me on the path to pursue the dissertation project. Um, in terms of my journey to graduate school, I was fortunate to be at the University of Pennsylvania where they had this amazing program called um, the Mellon Mays Undergraduate Fellowship. And so through that program, it's sort of like a pipeline program for students of color and students from other underrepresented backgrounds to get um, familiarized with graduate school and familiarized with the profession of becoming a professor or an academic. And through doing that program for three years as an undergraduate, they provided me with the assistance that I, I desperately needed because I was not from a wealthy background whatsoever to apply to graduate school and to see this as something that could really be a possibility for me in my life. Um, and that network has sort of carried me through graduate school in many ways as well. Oh, wow. That's pretty, that's really interesting. And I guess I am curious about your research in the sense that while you're, you know, this is your work, do you see any parallel lines with the COVID pandemic? And, you know, like, how did, when the COVID started and happened and still happening, <laughs> um, what lines of similarity have you seen? Yeah, so one of the things that I did as I was researching the project was create a database of smallpox epidemics that affected enslaved Africans. And I used um, a mapping technology called CartoDB to map the database and create time-lapse maps of it. And when I made those maps, I thought to myself, oh my gosh, this just looks like a map of the slave trade. But then what does that tell you about where and when enslaved people are experiencing smallpox epidemics? Unfortunately, my friend and colleague Stephen Thrasher at Northwestern has done similar research looking at maps of COVID-19 and looking at maps of police violence and brutality and looking at maps of um, over-policing in communities and maps of the most incarcerated communities in the U.S. And unfortunately, those lines are quite similar as well. So where we see these epidemics most affecting people of color are often the places where people of color are dealing with a variety of other intersectional um, violences and forms of exploitation. Um, and that's something that unfortunately tracks throughout history. Um, additionally, what I would say, but what I would say on the positive side of things is there were really tangible ways that enslaved people um, 
sought to create community in times of epidemics and engaged in advocacy for their care. So like a lot of people know about the yellow fever epidemic of 1793 in Philadelphia, where Black people in Philadelphia organized to dismiss the myth that they were somehow immune to yellow fever. Um, Rana Hogarth has written about that extensively. But even in the case of smallpox, you see examples of enslaved people pooling resources among themselves. You see examples of enslaved people going to great lengths to get care for one another within their families and within their communities. Um, you see enslaved people continuing to gather over and over again. Or sometimes you even see in the case of like the first smallpox epidemic in the Americas, the first slave revolts occur shortly after that, which were revolts that um, challenged the very structures of the society that enabled the disease to spread in the first place. So we do see this relationship between like, and we, and we saw the, um, the reemergence of mutual aid networks and the strengthening of mutual aid networks in the context of COVID-19. We saw the emergence of social movements that were about police brutality, as well as COVID-19, as well as the poor working conditions. So we see that Black people have this long tradition, what we might even say is a part of the Black radical tradition, um, this promotion of community health and well-being um, that, that persists in our communities today, too. So it's sort of both the negative and the positive historical legacies here. And I guess when you, when you were doing, the, is it called the CARTO-DB? Is that what you said? CARTO-DB was the, CARTO-DB. Was the mapping technology. How yeah. did you connect with other professors to, to like, you know, be like, are we seeing similarities? Because that's pretty, um, yeah, like there's a, I guess I don't know how to, to phrase this, but how did you make that connection with other professors? Like, were they just colleagues or? Well, so the way that I did it was I mapped the database by myself. Now I mm-hmm. learned about CARTO-DB because at NYU, where I attended graduate school, um, we have this wonderful program called the Atlantic World Workshop. Mm-hmm. And usually you bring they bring in s- scholars who are workshopping a piece of writing or something like that. But occasionally they do professional development workshops. And one of our professional development workshops was run by a professor, Dr. Annalise Shrout, who um, sh- taught us how to use a variety of digital technologies, um, mapping, um, word cloud creation, a variety of different kinds of digital humanities texts to, um, and, and got us thinking about how they might apply to our work. And so she introduced me to CARTO-DB. And then I realized that the data that I had collected about enslaved people's um, experiences with smallpox, which was already in a spreadsheet form, just needed longitudinal and, lat- and latitudinal late data points in order to be able to fit right into CARTO-DB to generate a map. So I generated that by myself, but then it was looking at maps like the Slave Voyages database maps that helped me realize that the connections between the slave trade and smallpox. And now I'm not the first scholar to assert that there was a connection between the slave trade and smallpox. Mm -hmm. Thurl Alden and Joseph C. Miller um, asserted this many, many decades ago in the 1980s. I believe their first article was like 1985 about this, observing this connection. But I am one of the first people to actually create a visual map and narrative Mm -hmm. about it. Um, and I hope to make those public later this year um, with the support of a grant from the Caribbean Digital Scholarship Collective. We'll definitely be looking forward to that. It would definitely be interesting to see. And so you've mentioned a couple of programs like the PERM over at um, University of Pennsylvania and then the Atlantic um, Atlantic World Workshop at NYU. Yeah. So how do you think these places 
helped you form your ideas in the sense that do you did you go into it learning um, well obviously you did <laughs> but did you go into it following your specific train of thought like this is what I came here for and then you know it added on to it and were you pulled and pushed in different directions that you did not want to go but still stayed your you know your path yeah um, so how did that go with you know with with being in those circles well, I'll say like graduate school, definitely as an undergraduate, I was pulled and pushed in different directions, but I would call that guidance because as undergraduates, you know, you're, you're still learning a lot. Um, and so through my undergraduate education in PERM, where I was working on someone else's project, and then as a Mellon Mays fellow, where I was working on my own project, um, I was also part of this program in undergrad called University Scholars that funded undergraduate independent research. So I did have a lot of agency over my projects, but the kinds of questions I was asking were somewhat dictated by the readings that my advisors, Kathleen Brown and Tamara Walker, were suggesting. Um, and that was just good guidance and good mentorship at that point. In graduate school, you get a little bit more agency, or at least I got a little bit more agency over my projects. And professors were really asking me, what do you think? Like, I remember working with Otto Ferrer, um, who eventually was on my dissertation committee on my first iteration of my dissertation project in a research seminar. And I said like, you know, I'm interested in enslaved people's visceral experiences. I'm interested in their lived experiences, but all I'm finding is this detailed information about smallpox. And she was like, well, why don't you just write about smallpox for now and then maybe expand it later. And as I kept researching smallpox, I realized that focusing just on smallpox as a disease actually could provide a window into all of these other questions that I wanted to ask and wanted to research about enslaved people's inner lives, about their experiences of disease, physically about their social experiences of epidemics, the, the ways that the economics of epidemics came to bear on their bodies and lives and, and strained social relations, also the spiritual dimensions of what they thought epidemics meant spiritually and politically, like those kinds of implications for them. Um, and I will say that I never, I never got any pushback on the project from anyone who was on my committee. My committee was overwhelmingly supportive of the project, but I did get pushback from other professors who were kind of like, and still do sometimes, who are like, well, why aren't you researching, you know, the, the ways that race is made through these questions, which is a question that dominates a lot of the discussions around race and the African diaspora in the early modern period. Or why aren't you looking at the circulation of medical knowledge between Africans and Europeans? That's that's an area of your field, especially in the history of medicine that is thriving. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like there's a way that sometimes those questions almost always reify whiteness as the object of study. And mm -hmm. I'm disinterested in that. I'm just going to be frank. I'm disinterested in that. I'm interested in, in Black experiences and Black intellectual trajectories and the social and political and spiritual meanings of smallpox to Black people. It's incredibly important to me in my work that I always center the enslaved. And there's a way that I was sometimes asked questions or pushed in directions that would decenter them. And so what I kept at the forefront of my mind in sort of defending the project was, this is a different kind of intellectual project. This is an intellectual project that sort of sits at the intersections of history and black studies in certain ways. And I would have to justify and defend that intellectual project. And I'm grateful that there are generations of black studies scholars and generations of historians who have been in the same position before. So I had a lot of tools in my arsenal, so to speak, for how to do that kind of justifying and defending of the project. That's yeah, that's really interesting. And it's it's about the decentering the white gaze. And this actually leads me to the next question in regards to when you're 
Um, and, I'm, and I guess I'm, I'm not too familiar if while you're creating these maps, you know, you're doing some designing as well, like on the on the back end or just from a foundational stance. How do you make sure that, and I don't know, this is more of a conversation, right? There's no right answer to any of these questions, but how do we make sure that the methodologies that we use while we're in graduate school are not a reproduction of like colonial ways? Um, I always question this, right? Making sure that, okay, I'm not reproducing um, the same things and the same structures in the in the way that's harmful to Black communities. Yeah. And, you know, the same, the question that I have in this regard, and I'm always thinking and always reflecting on it is, one way to do that is to stay in touch with the community, um, center the community, get like, center the local knowledges from the community. But what are your thoughts on that? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things. First, I would say the maps are tricky and I'm still working through this because I'm in the very early stages of taking the maps and the database from being a research tool for personal use for my dissertation and transforming it into a digital humanities project that has its own set of arguments and is useful to people besides just me. Um, and as I think about that, I'm thinking a lot about the structure of the map, some things that I won't necessarily have control over in this iteration of the project because we're just working on it for a year to develop a prototype, but things like the Mercator projection minimize the Caribbean and Africa, which is troubling for this project. So thinking about what other kinds of projections might be useful for just mapping as a base map for the space. Also thinking about the database itself and what kind of violence my metadata may be doing. What things does my metadata obscure? What epistemologies, what histories does the metadata that structures my database limit us from seeing? But also what does it actually bring to light and what and how can I use Alex Hill at Yale instructed me that like, you know, prose is one of our most powerful tools for dealing with some of these ethical issues. So how do I create prose that accompanies um, the digital humanities project, the website, the data points in a way that helps us center the lives of enslaved people and specifically the lives mm -hmm. of enslaved people, not their deaths. Like I deliberately chose not to tabulate mortality because I feel like black mortality is overstudied in some mm -hmm. ways. And I'm interested in black experiences of morbidity, suffering and survival. And so how do we think about, how do we center the lived experiences of black people and recognize that suffering does not always culminate in death. Um, sometimes suffering is a long durée experience. Sometimes suffering is structured by, is mitigated and structured by people's deft attempts to survive and how do we account for those things as well. Um, but I also wanna say in terms of like, how do I go about centering the lives of enslaved people? Some of that is by engaging with local scholarship. So, you know, my project spans the history of four empires. Um, I study the Spanish, French, Portuguese, and British empires in my work. So reading scholarship by scholars in those languages, scholars who have worked in those communities, reading widely in terms of also reading anthropological scholarship and knowing a little bit about the communities, the descendant communities currently has been incredibly useful for keeping my frame of reference focused on the people who I want to center in my work. Um, I also lean heavily on um, Marisa Fuente's concept of, of epistemological reorientation, where you sort of flip the script on the on the historical documents, which are often written by colonial authorities, and instead use those documents for other ends to focus on the 
lives of the enslaved. But then another thing that I found is incredibly important. And I think like, you know, there's a lot of talk about like community engaged learning and being a scholar activist and other things today. I don't necessarily consider myself any of those things, but during the COVID pandemic, I participated in um, mutual aid with an organization called West Southwest Philly Votes. They're primarily an electoral organization, organizing um, organization, but um, they also did really extensive mutual aid work in, in the community that I live in, in West Philly, in terms of bringing elders groceries, in terms of getting people masks, getting access to COVID tests, getting access to COVID vaccines. And participating in that changed the research, the types of research questions that I asked as I got to know my neighbors who, as we were all experiencing this pandemic ourselves. Mm. And I feel like doing that kind of work, like, you know, you, uh, some scholars, Anya Lumba says, like, think locally and act, or think globally and act locally. I was thinking a lot about the global pandemic, but also re-engaging with my community and thinking about how we shared resources and how we persisted and survived amid the chaos of the epidemic amid the chaos of the social movements and the police and the extremely brutal police response to social movements was actually incredibly useful for thinking through some of the questions in this project and thinking through how do I center um, enslaved people and even reading work that has come out since then, like work by folks at the Paul Robeson House, work by folks like Stephen Thrasher, who I mentioned earlier, who are writing about COVID-19 and who are also writing about other um, persisting pandemics such as HIV pandemic has been really useful for me in terms of thinking about what about this applies to the period that I study. What about the sensitivity of these analyses and perspectives do I want to bring to bear on my own work, if that makes sense? No, it makes perfect sense. And it makes me think of how usually, you know, when we're talking about research and we're talking about academia, we think of it from like an objective standpoint of we cannot be implicated in this we or else it's not considered credible or like you're too close there needs to be some sort of distance but it's very interesting to see how scholars have kind of shifted um in just different ways in how they approach their research because of the COVID, right because of how for, for many different reasons, things like, I'm just so curious to see what's going to come out in the next 20 years, you know, it's, yeah. some have shifted, some have standed strongly. I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like what do you, what do you think on like this, the subjectivity versus objectivity? Um, I know I'm always a fan of subjectivity. It's, it's, um, I don't know. I don't think it's negative. I think there could be I do see the argument in, in if you're too close to it, then, you know, maybe you're blindsided in a certain type of way. But there's also pros to the subjectivity. But there's nothing in life that you can just be objective. <laughs> exactly. There's nothing in life that you can be objective about. And also trying to create distance between yourself and your historical subjects makes it so that you put on blinders that you wouldn't have had otherwise. You know, when I was thinking about, I think about mourning differently now. Like, I think about mourning during epidemics differently because smallpox epidemics made it so that enslaved people couldn't mourn their dead in ways that were very similar to how in the early COVID mm -hmm. pandemic, people were not able to mourn their dead. Mm -hmm. um, I think about that 
in terms of the unevenness of how diseases affect each other, you know, like, like COVID was something that for a lot of, I'll just be frank, COVID for a lot of white people was something that, you know, was killing their elders. I, it killed my peers. Mm -hmm. Like I, you know, my, my high school reunion group became a, and I'm not that, I'm not that old. I'm in my thirties. My high school reunion group became a space for people to, for people's spouses to ask for support for their children after their partners died. Mm -hmm. Like we, we lost so many people in New Jersey and young people too, like young mm -hmm. black people. And just that uneven experience of it. I thought a lot about what are the ways that uneven experiences of death for enslaved people shaped their lives thereafter, um, shaped their sense of the society that they lived in. Shape their sense of themselves, even as a survivor. Um, you know that those kinds of questions entered my mind in a way, and were at the forefront of my mind in a way that I didn't have it before, um, because I had never been through anything like this before. Mm. Um, and I think that also when we try to tell our, when we're not attentive to our subjectivity, that's a space where, you know, that's a very very dangerous space where you might accidentally accidentally commit some type of epistemic violence because mm -hmm. you're not being attentive to the ways in which your positionality is implicated in this work. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's always important to keep that in, in mind and at the forefront of your mind. And, I, and I'm not gonna lie, you know, when you research, like I'm of Caribbean descent, I'm like third and fourth generation American or third and no, third and second generation American. Um, and, you know, I have a connection to the Caribbean. I have a certain intimacy with the people that I, I write about, but I also recognize that I live in a very different time in a very different place from them. And I'm still in touch with those, with communities of Caribbean descent and, and Caribbean communities in the Caribbean today. But I recognize my positionality as an American makes it so that certain frameworks and other things are things that you can sometimes inadvertently put on a space or or put in or put on the region. And you need to and the ways in which I have to always be self-conscious of that and careful of that as mm -hmm. I do my work. Mm -hmm. And that comes from paying attention to my own subjectivity. Yeah. If I ignored that, then I I would potentially be sort of, for lack of better words, Columbusing in a way. Yeah. And mm -hmm. you know, so I think you know, taking a critical approach and recognizing that. And we're discouraged from doing that in history. I feel like anthropologists have gotten a little bit better at it. But I think that historians need to need to be doing that work too. It's um it's a it's a difficult thing, you know, to to do research in a place where you come from. Um, because as I do research on Senegalese women's literature, it's it requires so much self reflection and like yeah questioning of I don't know I don't know I don't think morality would be the same thing but just I guess ethics you know of like mm -hmm. is this you or is this what you're seeing you know and there are some there's some works where you can see you can see the people being heard right they're not being given a voice they're not they're like and that's such a I would I hope I can get there <laughs> where you know you can you can hear the people um you know, you craft your research in a way that you can hear these people as opposed to 
giving voice or because giving like they have a voice so we have to be and even that that was the step because I don't think I could have said that two years ago you yeah. know like a year ago I was like no I shouldn't be thinking along those frameworks but it, it takes so much like work and reflection <laughs> and the, all that work and reflection I actually think is what is like the definition of rigor like I think when you are self-reflexive about your own subjectivity and your own and the ways that you're implicated in your own work and the ways that your analyses are shaped by your subjectivity you're doing extremely extremely rigorous cutting-edge work that our fields often discourage so in many ways you're pushing the limits of the field in some ways and it's and I feel like some people write it off as me search but I actually think that this is where the rigor mm. lies you know and that's what it means to be a rigorous and engaged scholar um, it's a different it's a different level of of intellectual demand when you do that. Yeah, it, it really is. And I guess I'm, I'm curious, while you are going through graduate school and while you're doing this, how do your peers who are not in academic spaces feel? Like, how do you communicate this to them? How do you still um, perform that, like, do that engagement with the community that are that is not in non-academic spaces? It's very hard, personally, for me to, like, explain this to a to a non-academic audience like they get it but sometimes it's like the impact they're like okay and then and then I'm, I'm like I'm right there with them sometimes I'm like yeah okay yeah well I mean we're, we're figuring it out <laughs> yeah yeah um I would say like I don't know this feels weird to say but it's like my closest community are people outside of academia like the people mm -hmm. in my life that I call my chosen family the, the vast majority of them are not academics most of them are artists, most of them are healthcare workers in some mm -hmm. shape or form or healers in some shape or form. Um, and the ones who are healers especially understand the significance of the work um, and are oftentimes like excited about the fact that my work as a historian is uncovering black healing traditions that exceed biomedicine um, and that don't lead to like a biomedical narrative or and I'm that I'm not trying to sort of find ways to fit African and African diasporic um, health and healing knowledge into like a global narrative of medical history that ultimately leads to some like neoliberal concept of the body and health. Um, and so they're they're genuinely really interested in like what I find in my research. Um, in terms of other, in terms of my friends who are artists, they understand the craft and they're very, they push me all the time in my writing in a lot of ways. Um, and push me to think about the dimensions of my projects, both my digital humanities project as well as my book project in different kinds of ways. Um, and definitely, I mean, conversations with my friends have shaped how I speak about my work when I speak for the public, mm. um, and before the public in different ways. Um, in terms of communicating, especially since COVID, people have been more interested in my research. So I've done things like written for The Atlantic and written from Black Perspectives and now written for The Funambulist as well. Um, and doing that kind of work, I think about my conversations with my friends. I think about conversations with my sister. How would I explain this to my younger sister, mm. who's a visual artist, um, who's not like the, who's and not a historian, you know, um, and then I would say in terms of community engagement, I think a lot of academics, because they have so much knowledge and with that 
a certain degree of power oftentimes want to go into organizing spaces like and lead Mm -hmm. and i feel like for me whenever i enter any space that's organizing i'm there to listen and i'm there to follow Mm -hmm. um and so i think having a certain degree of humility is also necessary for doing community engaged work Mm -hmm. and you know as i was doing like vaccine canvassing I brought to bear my knowledge of African inoculation practices and other things. Like I had several conversations with people on the phone who were mistrustful of the vaccine or who were nervous about the vaccine or who felt that the vaccine was some like dangerous white technology to talk to them about how immunology also has African roots, Mm -hmm. how this is something that, you know, can enable for enslaved Africans. They rarely talked about inoculation as something that they used to prevent mortality and instead talked about the kinds of lives it enabled them to live, how it enabled them to establish trade relations or political relationships and other things and protect their communities. And so I, you know, used that knowledge to talk about how getting vaccinated for COVID was something that might, you know, enable you to resume social relationships with your family members, to be able to resume safety in your household and other things like that, mm-hmm. um, which was something that I learned from my research and brought to the organizing space. But I was not there like trying to be a leader in any shape or form. I was really there to listen to the experienced organizers on the ground. Mm. Um, And so I think like keeping in, I think basically like at the baseline, just keeping in touch with people outside of academia. I feel like so many people go to graduate school and their world becomes their graduate school colleagues and professors. And I think that that's such an unhealthy way to be like what other, if we heard that people were doing that in other professions, we would be deeply concerned. Like I'm deeply concerned <laughs> for people who that who allow this to become too much of their world because you can become detached from the world around you. And also like, you know, from a resource perspective, universities and things have a lot of resources. We need to be sharing them with the communities that we're in, especially when we're in communities that are impoverished in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we need to be doing what we can to share our knowledge and to engage in community and play a role in community rather. And that role might not be as a leader, as I like, you know, can't emphasize that enough. That role might be as a listener, as somebody who's just engaged, too. Mm-hmm. And that that. Yeah, I, I really like that um, concept of you, you do not have to lead. Yeah. <laughs> you, you really don't. And it's um, I think it requires humility and. Not everyone is born to be a leader, too. You know, that's yeah. another thing. I did like it's it's a tr- it's a fact, and I don't think that means it's negative. But it's um, like the ways that you just mentioned of engaging; those are some real ways, and it um, it doesn't mean you're any less, or um, it just means you're able to craft what you exactly. you know your skill into a into a place that can work. Um, and that's really that's really beautiful. I that yeah, that warmed my heart. That's really nice. And this makes me think of, you know, I wonder and maybe not if this didn't happen, but while you're in graduate school and, and while while you're actually doing this work, have you had like aha moments, like a transformational experience, whether it was you were explaining a concept or you found something or what were some of those moments you were like you know those feelings where like two pieces of a puzzle connect and you yeah. for just even if it's for just for 30 seconds you feel whole <laughs> yeah it's, um yeah have you had those moments I feel like I had those moments in a lot of interesting ways I mean so I was very very fortunate to have completed most of the research for my dissertation before the pandemic so I was traveling extensively I was in 
I was back and forth to the UK. I was back and forth to Spain. I was back and forth to Portugal. I was in Colombia. I was in Jamaica, Barbados. I was all over the US. Um, and, and this was all possible because we were not living in a world where there was a global pandemic. Um, and every time that I entered a new space felt like a kind of a transformation. And then also as I was finding, as I was doing research, I often found enslaved people scattered across different archives. So like I have an article in the William and Mary Quarterly and that article was based on research in like five or six different archives where I kept finding the same enslaved woman who had unfortunately been quarantined and unfortunately was um, raped and became pregnant with a, with a, a son. Um, and as I was like sort of following her story across these different archives in Spain and the US and Barbados and the UK, that was sort of an aha moment of realizing that this is the same person that I'm finding mm. showing up again and again. And that changed how I looked at what I conceive of as slavery's archive mm. as being something that's not an archive that has a physical space, but is an archive of dispersal. Mm. Um, and I think recognizing the ways in which slavery's legacy not only dispersed people, but also dispersed the documentary record of those people and what it means to put that back together again makes me feel whole. And the fact that I'm able to do that, that I'm like, you know, privileged and lucky enough to be able to do that kind of work um, and doing it makes me feel whole mm -hmm. in some way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, that, that must be a feeling um, like following a, a sort of pattern. It's, yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, while, while you're doing this and, you know, from your time, if you can remember from graduate school, what, what were some of the things or, you know, tools, resources, people, whatever, however it came to you that helped you persist forward, whether yeah. it was like low times and, you know, on the same token, what do you think you needed in graduate school that you didn't have and was probably still missing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, I would say, so when I first started graduate school, I went to NYU. I lived in Newark, New Jersey, because I couldn't afford to live in New York. Um, and, like, I really couldn't afford to live in New York. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> Because some people say that and then they go live in New York and yeah. Brooklyn and like share an apartment. And I actually like, I couldn't even afford to do that. Yes. Um, so, so, but I joined a running club in Newark my first semester of graduate school. And that was a space where I was out of my head. And that was a space where I was with, it was a black woman, it was called Black Girls Run and it was their Newark chapter. Mm. And it was really good to be among other black women doing this thing that um, I really loved. Like, you know, I ran track and cross country in high school and it was always a place of like peace and solace for me, like almost like a meditation. Mm. So doing that in my early years of graduate school until I couldn't anymore because of injuries was really, um, healing and necessary for me. And I've always felt that doing something that reaffirms my body is necessary for the work that I do that is so, so much of it is focusing on people's violated bodies, people's mm -hmm. suffering bodies, people's fights to survive. Finding ways to thrive in my body has always been a really important healing mechanism for me. Um, I would say that 
one of the beauties of being in New York rather than being at a university that's more cloistered (laughs) was that you could have a community outside of academia that sort of like keeps you in check a little bit and Mm -hmm. keeps you and keeps (laughs) you like having fun and just you know not in your head all the time Um, and it fosters that sense among your cohorts so that people are not as for lack of better words, I've heard of some stories from graduate school where people were really vicious to each other in their cohort. And that just wasn't my experience at all at NYU. Everyone was so friendly and so supportive and so caring and had so many interesting things going on in their lives outside of school Mm -hmm. that um, it made for a really generative and rich space of exchange while I was there. So I would say my cohort definitely got me through. My cohort was huge, but they definitely got me through. I mean, I I wouldn't be standing without people like Kimani Gibson, and then also people in other cohorts like Brianna, Brianna Royster, Alejandro um, McGee, Erica Duncan, Shavane Scott, and then also in my cohort, Lila Chambers, who was the other person in Atlantic history with me. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we found a way to work together very early as we were prepping for exams, and then later as we planned conferences and, and wrote our dissertations, having that colleague relationship um, was just so important and continues to be so important. Um, but what did I need in graduate school? I would say the pandemic, because I was writing my dissertation during the pandemic, I needed more community as I was writing. I, I came to a really, really low space as I was writing the dissertation during the pandemic. And I was dealing with familial stresses too. Like my sister had moved in with me and we were trying to, because she was in college and her college closed their dorms. Mm. And so we were trying to figure out how to make ends meet for both of us and also how to get her graduated while doing a dissertation. It, it felt extremely isolating. And I sort of allowed for that to happen. People called me into community a lot and I felt ashamed or felt like I didn't need it or felt like I wasn't going to be able to bring enough to the table. And I wish that I had listened to them more sooner because I think it would have made a real difference in how that writing process went. But I learned my lesson from that. And like, I'm now blessed to be part of so many amazing digital and physical communities, Mm writing groups and things like that. And so my advice to people would be to stay plugged in and stay connected to people, even in moments of isolation and and something, even when doing something as isolating and focused as writing a dissertation. No, like you don't need to prioritize working on that chapter today. You might need to prioritize with connecting Mm -hmm. with someone else at that time. Um, And the other thing I needed in graduate school was money. Like, (laughs) I'm not going to lie. Like, you know, these, like I am, I will, I never want to forget how difficult it was financially as someone who doesn't come from means to go through graduate school, even though I was well-funded, I was mm-hmm. relatively well-funded. Like, you know, I was, thankfully NYU does provide a sufficient amount of support for graduate students and allows you to take external fellowships that can make a real difference. Mm-hmm. Um, like I wouldn't have been able to travel without those external fellowships and without support from NYU. Um, but at the same time, I wish there was more financial support for graduate students, especially ones from low-income backgrounds. Mm-hmm. I know that's something that schools typically don't take into account, but it makes a world of difference if you're someone who doesn't have a parent or family member you can call mm-hmm. for the $400 to get copies of something mm-hmm. when you have to come up with that out of pocket. You know, it just it's a different experience. And I think that we really need to pay attention to, to class in order to continue to diversify the academy. Mm-hmm. as well yeah. and that's that's very important if yeah I mean you said it there's really it's it's like a continuing conversation a continuing echo and it's um that's definitely it and um 
Thank you yeah. for sharing, um, you know, all of that with, you know, what was happening with your sister and wrapping up the dissertation. And I, I only learned about the writing groups during the pandemic. Yeah. And I, I wish I, I actually, because when I was wrapping up my MA thesis, I had to get comfortable in the isolation because I felt like, oh, well, there's there's nothing else. But the writing groups, um, I, I felt like I had nothing to bring. I was like, I don't know how to do this with someone else. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was, they were very open and very, they were like a solidarity. Um, and exactly. It, yeah. And you need that to get through any project. Like, you know, I'm glad that I've continued to be a part of them. Um, I'm a part of one with a group of Latin Americanists, an interdisciplinary group of Latin Americanists. Um, that's just incredible. And, you know, it, and it's been an incredible support. It's got, it's helped me get so many articles and so many, and made so much progress on my book. Mm. Um, you know, I'm just grateful that, that we've discovered how to build community in that way. And I'm grateful to the people who sort of spearhead doing that, which is something I haven't done yet, um, mm -hmm. but would definitely love to do in the future. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> And was there any, because I'm always curious to know, was there any sort of like song, a book, a piece of art that lifted your spirits <laughs> through your academic journey or something that you see, hear, or feel, and you it reminds you of why you're doing what you're doing? Hmm. Song, book, piece of art. So I would say book-wise, putting, there was a period of time where I was writing where I always had Jennifer Morgan's first book, Laboring Women, Stephanie Smallwood's book, Saltwater Slavery, and Marisa Fuente's book, Dispossessed Lives, stacked on my desk. Just as like, these are, this is the, this is the sort of shooting stars that I'm trying mm -hmm. to reach with my work. This is who I want to have, on, this is the approach that I want to have on my mind as I'm writing. Mm -hmm. And just having them there, and I'd occasionally pick them up and open to see how did they structure the introduction? How did they do this in a particular chapter? How can I learn from them right now? So having those three books on my desk was a big part of, me, of my writing process. Um, in terms of art, my sister is an amazing visual artist and digital designer. Yeah. And so she has this print that like she said was an angry print about overcoming something. Mm. With frustration, it's actually hanging on the wall behind me <laughs> yeah. and having that piece um, in my office where I wrote was, and, and stepping in and looking at it when my office was her bedroom mm -hmm. was um, <laughs> really, really crucial for me as I was doing the work. Um, and then finding other art by black artists, mm -hmm. you know, especially black women artists and populating my world with them. I actually, as a self-care practice, I try to do art appreciation at least once a week. Sometimes mm -hmm. when I'm working really hard every day where I just look at books that I have collected over the years mm -hmm. of Black art, um, because I think it gets you out of the textual space and out of the verbal space and into a visual space, which is really helpful. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of music, um, gosh, <laughs> I like I like funk, I like jazz, I listen to everything. So like there are periods where I'm listening to certain songs, like recently I was working on a piece about slavery and masculinity and I was listening to like a lot of Kendrick Lamar mm -hmm. to think about masculinity critically. Yeah. yeah, so mm -hmm. I feel like I try to like listen to people who 
have to do with the work in some way. I'm probably mispronouncing her name, but Jamila or Jamila Woods mm-hmm. um, is, I'm a huge fan and listening to her music. And she was also in Philly a lot before the pandemic. So going to her concerts was really mm-hmm. healing and supportive for me as I was doing my work. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. I'm very curious to have to one day see a study on like the correlation between songs and texts. Yeah. <laughs> we'll sort of um, work on that because there's there's much to do there, especially when Kendrick came out with his um, with the Mr. Steps and the Mr. Morale. Let Big yeah. Steppers and Mr. Morale, let me not um, butcher that. But I was like, oh, this is a book. It was, it yeah. was a book. It was, you can't. It was a, it's a book. And I feel like the fact that, and I feel like that's why I was listening to it was I was like, this is like theory for me mm-hmm. right now. Exactly. Like, yeah. That's, yeah. It was, it was, and I was like, this is knowledge. Yeah. Um, and it took, um, I'm just curious, it must have taken a lot out of him because that was not, like, tracks like Daddy Issues, I'm like, that's, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, um, okay, well, we could, we could have a whole nother conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so just to wrap up, what would you, what would, what would be your advice, um, I'm really thinking about the word advice the past couple of weeks because it's tricky. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but what would be your advice to minorities who are currently pursuing a graduate career or who are on the edge and who are not so sure? So I would say to those who are not so sure, it makes a huge difference. NYU was the right place for me to pursue my PhD. It the school fit me like a glove in terms of the in terms of the faculty that they had in terms of the way the program was structured everything and you know i turned down um admissions offers from schools that some people might that have a certain prestige to them that people sometimes associate differently but i turned them down because i knew that they were not a good fit for me and that i would and that being someplace that wasn't a good fit might make it difficult for me to do my work and also might make me unwell so you know be really really think about fit and think about what it is that you want to accomplish who it is that you want to learn from who it is that you want to learn with when you're choosing a graduate program at the outset and then for people in it it's a temporary status. It's a temporary experience. You don't have to be perfect. It's meant to be a learning experience. So take it as that. And if where you are is a bad fit, you can transfer, you can take a break. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, pr- always prioritize your well being too throughout this process. Um, and when you get to the other side of it, you're going to have a chance again to find some place that's a fit for you mm-hmm. in terms of your career. Um, and remember, and try to enjoy graduate school in some shape or form. Try to enjoy the fact that you have time uh, that you have time to read and think mm-hmm. and learn and acquire new skills if you need them. Acquire new languages if you need them. Remain curious and don't. And also remember that everyone that you're looking at ahead of you was where you were at some point. So don't try to like become something immediately. Like you will become that thing. It just takes time and patience and keeping your nose to the ground. And then one day you look up and you're like, oh, wow, I've written a whole dissertation. Oh, wow, I've written an article. Oh, wow, I've written a book. You know, these things, it's a process that takes, that occurs over time, um, years and years of work, not Mm -hmm. something that happens to anyone overnight. 
Um, definitely, it's uh, yeah. I can see from just everyone I admire, and this is yeah. It's it's a lot of work, yeah. <laughs> and thanks for that. And how did everything? How, I guess how did graduate school leave you, and where are you now, and how's it going, and are you enjoying life? <laughs> <laughs> graduate school. Graduate school left me feeling incredibly transformed and supported and grateful for the experience. You know, sometimes I miss it. Sometimes like, oh, I miss the days when I was like traveling around the world, doing <laughs> research and like throwing suitcases off of trains and things like that. Like, and, and sometimes I miss like the working groups that we had and the seminar space even. Sometimes I miss class, which is weird because I used to not love class. I love doing the work for class, but I didn't like class. Um, and now, you know, as a as like I'm teaching this semester at Princeton, so I'm someone's professor. And do, being in that position, you're like, okay, now I'm always leading the class, like which is a, which is a very different thing and, and an adjustment. But it's enjoyable and it's incredibly rewarding. Um, so right now I'm finishing up a postdoc at Princeton University, um, and I was on the job market this year. I've now received a few offers, and I'm making a decision. Um, in the next week about where <laughs> where I will be. And so these questions of like fit and my well-being, as well as questions about rigor and, you know, will this be the best place to do my work are at the forefront of my mind. Questions about which students I want to serve and other things and which communities I want to continue to serve and be a part of are very much at the forefront of my mind right now. Um, so I'm sort of at a crossroads, but you know, it will resolve itself in a week. So um, that's that. But yeah, that's, that's where I'm at um, right now. Well, thank you so much for joining us and making the time um, while you're thinking about all those questions, because that's, <laughs> you know, yeah, just, um, yeah I'm, I hope you make the decision that's best for you. And I think um, the work you're going to produce is going to be pretty cool to follow and track. So thank you. definitely looking forward to that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for this conversation. I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it too. Thank you so much. <laughs>